Our loving Father in heaven, we come to you expectantly because we know you're a God who loves to speak. And so we thank you that we can freely meet together this morning. We have Bibles on our laps. We pray that as we look at these verses together, this penultimate chapter in Joshua, you would speak to us, you would soften our hearts, you would open our blind eyes to see afresh the glory of Christ, and that you would help us to live these things out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've... We've pressed fast forward and we've jumped ahead to the very end of the book, basically, the penultimate chapter. We find Joshua looking ahead in these last three chapters, looking ahead to his death, or better still, to a time after his death. And so this is a chapter about finishing the job well. It's a chapter that says, okay, the initial conquest may be five-year process where we've been looking. That's gone okay. But what about for the next decades to come? What about for the next generation? What about for the next centuries even? What happens when Joshua goes? And so you see, I think it's a great chapter for people like us because it asks the hard questions of the future. In in a culture that very often thinks about now, we want stuff now, our focus is now, or maybe just the summer and holidays, but basically now. It's a chapter that says, take a step back and think about the years to come. It's got questions for us as individual Christians. It's got questions for us as a church, looking ahead, thinking how do we better engage in this area, in East Oxford, in Oxford and the world? How do we better be a church that loves and reaches and builds and sends? It engages with helping us think through the kind of church we want to be, the kind of things that we're known for, the kind of legacy that we will leave behind us. So it works at the corporate as well as the individual. But before we jump into it, I want to just ever so quickly, so you don't feel hard done by, try and give you the helicopter um, scan over what we've missed. Um, So grab your Bible if you can and have a look with me. Um, And essentially, so we left it last week at chapter 10, essentially... 13 to 21 is a huge chunk in Joshua, and it's basically where the land is divided up into different allotments for each family. Now, I recognise with your East Oxford ears on, you're thinking allotments, courgettes, not that kind of allotment. Areas of land given to each family, given to be an inheritance for each family. Although having said that, the first people mentioned are indeed the farmers, Do you remember Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh? They've already put their stakes in the ground, trans-Jordan tribes outside the land. They wanted that patch before the Jordan because it was particularly fertile. And so Moses agreed they could have it. And so that is the first bit that we get. They're the first people who are mentioned. But then in the land we get Caleb and Judah and Ephraim and the rest of Manasseh. Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan, and then a bit for Joshua. And then you get these things called cities of refuge, which were pieces of, places of, of peace and protection. If you unintentionally committed manslaughter, you could go and get protection there, basically. And then there were the priests and the Levites there, given some land as well. So 13 to 21 is basically a map lover's dream. 
where you get it in front of you and different bits are divided up for the different families. And then it concludes, if you just have a flick into chapter 21, again, if you've got these Burgundy Bibles, the very end there, page 237. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side. Just as he had sworn to their ancestors, not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their, into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. So that's kind of 13 to 21. Land allocation, then final summary. And then we get chapters 22 to 24, where we'll be um, for the next couple of weeks. And essentially what you get are three mini-sermons from Joshua to different groups of people within Israel, three final words that he passes on before he ends up um, going to be with the Lord. This is, if you like, his version of Deuteronomy, where Moses had his final words before he entered the land. So Reuben, Gad, Manasseh leave, and then we get a sermon in 22, and you get one in 23 where we'll be today, and then 24 will be next week. And where we are today, chapter 23, we will see it is very, it's very pastoral, It's less formal. And what we'll find are a number of of warnings and dangers from Joshua to his people. Three times, actually, he takes us on a route, on a circle, warning them and encouraging them to stick with the Lord. How will you relate to God after I've gone, he says? Will you serve him or will you wander off? And what we'll see, actually, is that the future will produce even greater tests than the tests they have seen so far in getting into the land. And so by the end of the sermon, you'll see he uses pretty stark imagery, pretty stark ideas. This really matters. How you follow the Lord really matters, says Joshua. And so I think we get three dangers. And the first one is in 1 to 5, and you'll see on the screens there, it is the danger of not living in the light of past grace. So have a look down. Remember, Joshua is much, much older than the rest of the people. It was just he and Caleb who were from the previous generation. They were the only ones who made it into the land. And so his speech begins, and he, he, he gives us these what, who, why, and what questions that we're going to ask of it. Who is Joshua talking to? Why is he talking to them? And what are they to do? Who's he talking to? Why them? What are they going to do? And who's he talking to? Well, it's primarily, have a look, do you see, in verse 1, it's primarily, 1 and 2, a plea to the leaders of God's people. The leaders of God's people who represent God's people. After a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges and officials, and said to them, that is, They gather around Joshua. The leadership come, but they represent their people. Joshua will speak to them, and they will then take that back. Why is it them? Why speak to the leadership? Well, clearly partly because they're leadership. But also then it's striking. It's because what they have seen. They have seen what the Lord has done. Verse 3. Do you see, you yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. They were the eyewitnesses. They were there. They saw with their own eyes how the Lord had been at work. They saw the mighty things that he did. Just rewind in your mind. Maybe 
chapters 3 to 4, as the priests first stepped into the water and the Jordan piles up and the nation crosses. Maybe they saw that. Maybe chapter 5 around Jericho, that they're marching and the walls tumble down. And they saw that. Maybe chapter 8, the city of Ai, second attempt. They see how it's just routed and destroyed, despite them being utterly overwhelmed in terms of numbers. Maybe chapter 10, hailstones and the sun standing still from last week. And they saw that. And with Joshua gone, they will be the privileged ones to pass these things on to the next generation. And for fear of sounding a bit like Spider-Man, with great privilege comes great responsibility. And these leaders have been privileged. And so with that comes responsibility. They had a chance to see these things, to be blessed by these things, to, to be changed by these things even. But now they've got to do something with them. What are they to do? The third question. Well, if you look down, it seems a bit like a paradox. Because in verse 1, it tells us they've already been given rest. But then if you see verses 4 to 5, remember how I allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. They're enjoying rest, but the job's not finished. The nations within Canaan might be conquered, but they're still there. They need to be removed. You get these areas listed, particularly in chapter 13. It's divided up, but the previous inhabitants are still living there. It feels a bit like the sort of student rental houses, where the landlord promises it to nice new tenants, but actually in reality the horrible old ones are still there. And so they have rest. But the job's not done yet. At least it's not finished yet. And so what are they to do? They are to find fresh courage and fresh focus because they remember what God has done in the past. They're to look ahead. They're to keep trusting him, to know that he will finish the job because they can look back and see his power so far. And see that he is a God who answers prayers. They've been blessed with experiences and privileges and things seen, which is to impact what they then do for the years to come. Striking, isn't it? A life of faithfulness for the people of God is never to store up and squirrel away what he's given us. But actually then, for that to motivate us and be lived out in the years to come. We must get to grips with this. We're, we're blessed in the past for things to come in the future. They've seen the power of God at work. And so they're to trust him with what's to come. And yet our problem is we have such short memories. We just forget, don't we, what he's done for us in the past. And we live next time as if it didn't really happen last time, actually. Do you find that? I know I find that. I'm faced with some challenge. And I'm like a goldfish with a three-second memory. And I swim around the tank and I've forgotten what happened last time. I've forgotten that he was faithful last time. I didn't need to get quite so stressed last time that he was good to me last time. 
But I swim around and there I am again, forgetful, self-reliant. Spiritual amnesia. But we're goldfishes. It's a thing you see again and again and again in Scripture, the need to live in the light of the experiences that come because of God's faithfulness in the past and to pass on those truths and those experiences to a next generation, actually. Spurgeon puts it very well. He says, We are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. We remember our trials for years and years to come, but we forget our blessings minute by minute. And it's sad, as the story unfolds, you see the passing on to the next generation of all God's faithfulness and acts and um, kindness to them. doesn't actually go that well. What we'll see is this generation doesn't finish the job. They don't drive the Canaanites out. The people do get tempted away. As I have a listen in to Judges 2, 10 to 13, and you see how some of it pans out. The author there says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples all around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtoreths. It's a life thing, isn't it? How can we be a people who remember and who pass on the blessings that we've, been, that we've received? How can we live in the light of those blessings that we've received? How can we be a church that better does that? How do we do that in our families? How do we do it in our personal lives? How does the Lord's past faithfulness, both in the little things of our lives, answered prayers, and the big things of salvation history, the cross and resurrection, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, empty tomb, how do these things shape how we look to the future? And the difficulties and the trials that no doubt will come. How do they shape how we live? There's some questions for you. Maybe as you're queuing up for coffee. Maybe as you're chatting at the dinner table this week, maybe as you're wrestling with these things in home groups, how can we better be a people who remember how the Lord has poured out his grace upon us? And would that be a fuel for the way that we live as we look ahead? I wonder whether the second danger, though, is actually a key reason we forget things so quickly, why we struggle to live in the light of this past grace. You see that in verse 6 to 13. This second round of warning from him. The the danger, secondly, of hearts that drift away from God. Have a look down at verse 6. Perhaps if you were here at the beginning, you will see we've come full circle from the start of the book in chapter 1. Those words are then picked up again in chapter 23. So let me read 23 verse 6 for us first. Um, So it says there, Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or the left, says Joshua to the leaders. Now keep an eye on that verse though, and I will read to you from 1 verse 7 from about nine weeks ago, if you were here. 
Uh, So 23 verse 6, and I'm comparing it with 1 verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn aside from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do you see the challenge for Joshua is now the challenge for the people? And there is no room for compromise. There's no room for sort of sitting on the fence or being a bit neutral about these things or not taking these things too seriously. Which again, when we think about this in the light of our culture and the world around us, is a very alien idea. We're encouraged to have our bases covered. To have fingers in various pies of faith. To be humble, not to set our ideas too strongly on Jesus. Sure, head to church on a Sunday. That's great for you. Well done. But surely you believe that these other ideas, these other religions are valid don't you you wouldn't be so proud as to say jesus was the only way would you and yet as joshua encourages them he says do not turn aside from the scriptures actually he makes it much more important than that and he turns the volume right up At the heart of this little section, there's a choice that we have. And it hangs off a particular word. It's there in verse 8. And you get the same word in verse 12 as well. In verse 8, we have it as hold fast. And then in verse 12, top of the next paragraph there, on the next line, if you turn away and ally yourselves, that hold fast and ally yourselves is the same word. And it's the word you get in Genesis 2 to describe marriage. The man is to hold fast to his wife, to cling to her. It's a word of commitment, of loyalty, of devotion, of love even. Israel is to cling to the Lord, to hold fast in deep affection to her God. And it seems, verse 8, that is how they've been doing it until now. There's a tick. It's a positive picture. They've been giving themselves unreservedly to him. They've trusted him. They've loved him. But into the future, says Joshua, that must continue. And so verse 12 is a shocking warning. If you, if you hold fast to the, survivors, to the survivors of Canaan, if you ally yourselves with them, it's, it's a horrendous idea, isn't it? How could they? God's chosen special people set apart for him. They could even contemplate going back again, away from him, back to paganism, to simply blend in with the Canaanite culture. It's almost beyond belief after all this journey, all this effort, All these examples of God's faithfulness and kindness, his protection of them. It's not beyond belief though, is it? Maybe because we know the story, maybe because we know our hearts. Which is why he spells it out so very clearly in 6 and 7. He repeats it again and again and again and comes at it from every angle. Be very strong, be careful to obey all that's written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. And then get this, verse 7, don't associate with these nations that remain among you. Don't invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. He covers every base. Guys, you can't wriggle out of this one. Stay away from them. Don't associate. Not even a hint of it. I guess the so-called gods of Canaan are much more tangible, perhaps much more apparently accessible, easily influenced, manipulated by people, far less demanding maybe than a god of truth and righteousness. 
much more attractive to hearts that wander, hearts that are sucked in and duped far too easily again and again and again by any and everything. I guess with these so-called gods, essentially we end up being God because we're able to make them do what we want to do. If we can just keep on their side, if we can just manipulate them enough and press the right buttons, then life is good, we'll get what we want. In Canaan, as we've seen in weeks gone by, it would have been a pretty unpleasant mix. Perhaps the right kind of sacrifice, the right kind of child, and you might get what you want. Maybe the right kind of sacred sex, and you might get what you want. The the right kind of bloodshed. And out would come what we want, maybe the good harvest. Maybe the material blessings of some kind that they long for. It strikes me that it's not just the nature of the danger that they face that's important. The God whom they end up serving. But actually it's the way that it creeps in, which is important too. Almost imperceptibly, almost invisibly. I think is why he covers his bases so well in verse 7. Almost without realising what's happened, you find the landscape of your life has shifted, the landscape of your heart has changed, and bit by bit by bit, tiny steps, the things you used to care about, you kind of don't care about so much anymore, and the things that you didn't care about, you do now care about quite a lot. The way that our hearts, bit by bit by bit, shift. It's the proverbial frog in the saucepan of water. It's a metaphor, but it's reality. You know the idea, you put a a metaphorical frog into a metaphorical pan of boiling water and it'll jump straight out. But if you put it into warm water and then turn it up bit by bit by bit, you end up with cooked frog. I'll say with us, you put us into perhaps a stark environment where God is sidelined or dismissed or mocked, maybe a new workplace, a new club, a new school, whatever it might be, where other so-called gods are valued and treasured, then you feel very alien and very uncomfortable and very out of place, very different. But drop us into a more neutral place, and then over time, bit by bit by bit, watch it change. Gently, gently, slowly but surely. And compromise is not far off. We don't even realise what's happened. We end up like a cooked frog. And so Joshua says, when I've gone, don't worship their gods. Of course, the default position of the human heart is and will always forever be to worship ourselves. Ever since Genesis 3, we've wanted to be God. We've wanted to be our own gods. And all the time, our culture is parading beautiful gods for us to bow down to, trying to persuade us, this is what we need. This is how you ought to look. This is where you need to go. This will make your life better. This will give you joy. Trust us. This is what you must have. And we believe it far too easily. The particular reason it matters for them here, and we've touched it on weeks, weeks gone by, is, is that their holiness as the people of God matters a huge amount. And it's not just that God is some sort of insecure, egotistical maniac, and he needs their worship in some sense, because he's just a bit of a um, snowflake. He can't cope without people liking him. 
No, no, it's rather that his plan is to reach the nations. His plan is to draw in the ends of the earth that they might enjoy him and enjoy life in him. And the way he's going to do that, through Israel being different, being set apart, being a light in the darkness. As they love him and live out their trust in him and are different, so the world sees something of what God is like. Which means if Israel is just like everybody else, then there's a big issue there. Which is why God wants to protect his people so much. Have a look down. How are they going to continue to be distinct and different? I think Joshua gives us in this second section two very different reminders. Both are very stark. Both, I think, are needed. We might very crudely describe them as the carrot and the stick. The carrot is 8 to 10, and it's don't forget God's deeds, his grace. Remember all he's done, do you see? Remember all his promises, remember his power, remember his kindness, remember the stories of his faithfulness, remember the way he drove out before you great and powerful nations, remember how no one's been able to withstand you, remember how the Lord fights for you just as he promised. He is faithful, he is Trustworthy, you can trust him and so live in the light of that actively and obediently. Keep trusting him. That's the carrot. But then 11 to 13 as well, don't forget his discipline. Don't forget God's discipline. And we're less keen on this one. But 11 to 13, if you wander away, if you worship the gods of Canaan, then you'll have nothing. You will have nothing if you turn away and cling to the survivors of these nations. If you ally yourselves with them that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. It is, it's a striking mix, isn't it, of motivation for for holiness and for faithfulness. This is the Lord brutally laying it out before us. If you live for me in the land, it will go well. If you don't, it won't, he says. Mordom Road, we need to keep trusting our God. Remember his grace. Remember his kindness. Remember what he's like. But remember his warnings too. We must not wander off from him. We must keep trusting him. Which then leads to the stark crescendo at the end. Verse 14 to 16, the danger of forgetting who our God really is. Of this second sermon in his series, here is what Joshua wants to end with. Here is what he wants to leave them ringing in their ears. Verse 14, now, now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you 
all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he's given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he has commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Wow. Now, we saw it a couple of weeks ago. That, do you remember when we were on um, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim as they brought the blessings and curses of the Lord back upon themselves? They committed themselves afresh to him. But the fundamental idea is this land does not belong to the people. This land of Canaan is not theirs. That is at the heart of this final section, of this final plea. They are simply tenants. They must not forget they are simply tenants in the Lord's land. And he has brought them to the land. Verse 14, beautifully, God has shown himself to be faithful. He is, each and every promise has come to pass. He's fulfilled every single one. He's ticked every single box. That, but they still got to show that they are his. And it'd be lovely to end the sermon on verse 14. Has no one told Joshua how to preach? How to finish up on a positive, on something warm, something hopeful, something to treasure away in our hearts and mull over for the week ahead. No, sometimes just we need it plainly. And there is this warning that we finish with. The last thing we hear is, don't walk away from the Lord. Don't drift after other things. They promise you so much, but they leave you with nothing. They do not satisfy. Please don't do it, he says. I should say, if that is relevant, it's relevant to us all, but if that's a particular relevance to someone in this room, do come and grab me afterwards. Don't walk away from him. Someone um, here a couple of weeks ago said quite rightly that we found Joshua quite hard. We found him hard because it's God, but with the volume dial turned right up. And you see his anger and his justice and his holiness and his goodness on display. You see that the wages of sin is death. And we see these things on, on display in a way that is good for us, but in a way that we can find very uncomfortable because it's just so stark. It's so not what our culture likes. And so easily it's not what we like. The fact that we found it so hard, maybe it shows us we just forget these things too quickly. Maybe we don't get the heights of God's goodness and so we don't get the depths of the sin and so we don't get the glories of the cross. Everything is just toned down, sanitised. And yet with Joshua, with Joshua we are a privileged people who see promises fulfilled. But actually we are more privileged because we can say with the Apostle Paul, all God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. You see, this Jesus is the greater Joshua who wins his people rest forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is the greater Joshua. And so as we cling to him, as we are in him, so we will enjoy that rest forever. And so verse 11, verse 11, we're a people who love the Lord our God. 
One writer puts it like this. We love him because in Christ we have ceased from our own works, from trying and failing to justify ourselves or make ourselves acceptable to God. We love him because our confidence in time and for eternity lies not in our record, but in Christ's. We love him because we have been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. We've been made citizens of a heavenly country, adopted into the family of the King of Kings. We love him because we already enter into a measure of his perfect rest here and now and anticipate the eventual fulfilment of all that we have now as a down payment in his immediate presence with light and love and joy and peace forever and ever. He continues, our faith is entirely relational. To love God, verse 11, is to embrace his proclaimed word, is to live in repentance and faith every day is to cultivate daily detailed obedience. It's to enter his rest now by believing his promises, but to live here in the light of eternity and the consummation of all things at the end of the age. Love the Lord your God, Joshua says to us. Friends, we are secure in Christ. We are safe. We can enjoy rest. We can enjoy him. And therefore, don't walk away. Don't walk away from him. Don't run after other gods. Don't be duped by them. Don't turn your back on him. Hold fast to him. Don't forget who he really is. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we feel the the challenge and the conviction of chapters like this. As Joshua lays it out for his people, as he lays it out for us, as to the stark nature of what it means to follow you. Guard us, please, from forgetting your blessings and your kindness and your goodness, whether personal things for us or or bigger picture things as we have forgiveness in Christ. Guard us from not living in the light of past grace as we look ahead. Guard our hearts, please, that so easily drift off after other things. It's easy to scoff at the gods of Canaan, but we recognise the gods of Oxford and how easily we can bow the knee. And yet particularly guard us, please, from forgetting what you're really like. From who you really are, your, your kindness, your faithfulness, your goodness to your people, and yet your extraordinary holiness. Your goodness which leads to your anger against sin. Help us please to keep clinging on to you, to keep trusting you. And yet, Father, in the light of chapters like this, we are are so thankful for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he perfectly fulfilled the law. Thank you that he died and was buried and was raised again and now is ascended to your right hand as the king of the universe. Thank you that you, you look at us, you look at us, and you see us righteous because of Christ.
might we please just grasp a little more of the, perhaps the reality of our sin, that we might see your extraordinary love for us. That we might see again the heights of the cross. Keep our eyes fixed on you, we pray. In your son's name. Amen.